Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Elise Keith, founder and CEO at Lucid Meetings, where she helps teams run successful meetings every day. She's also the author of Where the Action Is, the meetings that make or break your organization. Welcome to the show, Elise. I'm glad to be here, Douglas. So help listeners understand how you got started. So I began my career in technology and When I started, I worked for a company that built asynchronous collaboration software for international standards organizations. And the organizations that we serve, they do amazing work. I mean, it's it's not sexy work, but it's amazingly important work. They bring together people from industry and from government and consumers, and they decide how the world is going to function together. So like how wide are the roads going to be? Or, you know, how much lead is safe to have in our paint? You know, all of these things that are fundamental rules governing commerce and trade. And I found that the way that they made these decisions was in meetings. And so I'm watching these organizations full of people who are literally competitors, right? So it's in some ways, it's basically organized collusion. <laughs> at, the, at the international level, uh, literally competitors clearly in the room for different reasons come to agreements within defined periods of time and get the document signed. And then I would go back to the office and our engineering team would be arguing about how many spaces a tab should have in it. And, you know, are we going to do Python? Or are we going to do PHP? And, and we couldn't come to agreements in a timely way about anything. I was like, okay, what's going on here? Because at the office, we're all on the same team, right? We're all trying to achieve the same thing, right? And yet we were not as successful. And it turned out it was the meetings. It was absolutely when you make it very, very clear how to participate to get things done while you're together in the room, people can succeed. And that's powerful. And so we started our company to help make that possible for more teams more of the time. And what were the big lessons that you learned once you started to dig deeper into like the why and what was going on around the efficacy of these sessions, these, you know, these standards bodies were using? What did you start to learn? It was so fascinating, right? Because when we started the company, we were we were technologists and we're like, okay, we're going to build software that helps more teams be successful and makes it easier for these committees to be successful as they go through organizational change and transition. And so what can you see from the outside that this requires? And when you look at it from the outside, it's rules and it's agendas and it's uh, documented minutes. And I was like, oh, okay, well, clearly people just need to know that they should have an agenda and then they'll be successful, (laughs) right? And so we, we built software that helped make all of that go. And that was great for the committees who, in fact, did have agendas and structures and rules and whatnot. And that, it helped them save some time and automate some things they were doing otherwise. But we started to attract people who were interested in having that same kind of success, understood that they should use an agenda, but weren't governed by the same kind of clarity that the international committees were about what the agenda should 
have in it, about who should run it, about, you know, how everybody's meant to participate. And they would come to us and they would try to use our software and they would completely fail. So we learned through that process that a lot of the things that you will find in the really in the blog posts that you can read a hundred bazillion thousand of <laughs> and say, hey, for better meetings, do these five things, were just ever so much trite baloney because that's not actually where success comes from. So what's the hallmark of the success? I tend to agree that there's lots of things you can read around let's go do these things and Sure, those are behaviors. It's almost like when you ask a baseball player what they do to hit a home run, they're like, I never take my off the ball. And then you put a, a high-speed camera on and they're not looking at the ball. So right. what were these kind of real underpinning behaviors and, and tactics that were really creating the better meetings? So I think uh, your baseball example is a great example because the distinction, both in the committees that we used to serve, and some of them were definitely better at it than others, and then in the businesses and other organizations we've researched since then, the distinction between those who are successful and those who are not is whether they play as a team. Mm. So it has to do with, uh, if you think about any sport you've ever been part of, you don't start by playing the game as your first thing. You start by learning the rules of the game, practicing some of the fundamental skills, deciding who is playing which position, and then you enter into the game. Not every play is the same when you play, right? Every, you have different moves and different uh, strategies that you use at different times as the game progresses. Whereas in the business world, oftentimes they just set people free and they say, go off with your team and run a better meeting and you'll probably need an agenda. It's very much like saying, you know, hey, if you want to be successful physically, eat less and work out. Well, <laughs> sure, it's not wrong, right? It's not, it's not incorrect, but that's not exactly a plan. That's right. You know, it, it makes me think too, I always hear no agenda, no attenda. But <laughs> it drives me crazy. If people don't know how to make agendas or what should be on it, like how to, where, that's no place to start. Well, and it's it's not it's also not true, you know. The yeah. like a people who say that will accept calendar invites every day <laughs> that have no agenda on them. One hundred percent because they don't expect anything else. And and right. b you can absolutely run a great meeting without an agenda. And it's funny. I think it comes back to a couple of things you just said. You said clarity of an agenda, and I think this notion of clarity of agenda requires clarity in the first place. And in order to have clarity in the first place, we had to understand our purpose. That's right. And I agree with you. You can have a great meeting without an agenda, but you cannot have a great meeting without clarity of purpose. And that needs to permeate your attendees as well as who's facilitating the meeting. I mean, that just like hit me like a lightning bolt when you were saying clarity of agenda. It's like, yes, it all starts there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think you can have a lovely conversation without clarity mm. just because, you know, you got, you click, right? You get, you got the, mm -hmm. we come together and we're like, oh, we're going to spark and it'll be awesome. And people make the mistake of thinking that that translates to larger group settings and it translates to effective business outcomes. And that conversational spark, while wonderful, is not something that you can then scale once you've got more than five people in the room. And it's not exactly the sort of thing that says, you know, and we know what the decision is for the, you know, the spring campaign, and, you know, who's doing what, and all of the things that we actually, you know, the honest to goodness business stuff we need to get done. It's all about just sparking. So for that, you need some actual skills. 
No doubt. It reminds me of a BBC report that said most ineffective meetings actually form of therapy. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I always consult with my clients on is like, look, that's fine. In fact, we should probably honor that need that people have around connection. Mm -hmm. But if we don't honor that purpose and we don't intentionally (laughs) create those moments, then they're going to throw stuff on the calendar to soak up that need. And then now we're self-medicating and we're just kind of throwing stuff to the wind. And we're probably going to walk out disgruntled thinking, well, that meeting sucked when actually like, no, someone threw it on the calendar just to connect. (laughs) Especially if you've got that terrible mix of folks where like half of them are um, talk to think, (laughs) you know, I I, I process out loud and I need an audience to help reflect back what it is that I'm actually thinking versus folks who think deeply quietly on their own to get work done and you put them together and you can grind to a halt. It's a, it's really challenging. One of the clients I worked with had some really significant challenges around too much wasted time and ineffective meetings and they ended up solving that in a really lovely way, I thought. So they created a, an organizational ground rule that you needed to come to meetings 10 minutes early, which is it's just pretty extreme. That's a pretty big arrive early window. And of course, not everybody hits it all the time. But they then take that 10 minutes beforehand, and they created a second rule, which was to embrace stewardship. Mm. So whoever called the meeting is meant to show up early enough to make sure there's coffee, and that there are enough chairs, and all of these things are in place. And then in those 10 minutes, they greet each other, they say hi, and uh, they watch funny videos on YouTube. (laughs) You know, like they, or they, or they exchange safety uh, stories, or they, you know, they do whatever it is they need to do, and they've found it's been sort of a, a massive sea change because with that small talk stewardship welcome moment at the beginning, they're able to start on time and get through their business quite quickly, and now their meeting load went down by an average of forty percent across the board, which is huge. You know, there's probably an unintentional consequence of that, too, which is if you're starting meetings 10 minutes early, that means you can't have back-to-back meetings anymore. That's so exactly right. That buffer time creates some free time. Well, and it, it also made them, so they no longer start meetings at 8 a.m. Mm. Because they're like, oh, if people are just arriving to work at 8 a.m., they can't be 10 minutes early, can they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so overall, they became more efficient in the time that they did meet because it put constraints on how many open slots there were. And more human Mm. because they had, you know, realistic transition times. Yeah, I was just interviewing Marcus Carey on the podcast the other week, and he has this mantra around connection before content. And I think it's, it's smart, you know, and we never really had that mantra, but it was kind of core to everything we did because we acknowledge the fact that not everyone shows up on time, especially in the virtual world. So programming something in... If you're sitting there kind of just staring at the walls or like making some awkward small talk (laughs) while people are arriving, you're wasting time. That's valuable time that could be programmed to do something meaningful. And so anyway, I love that they did that. You know, even if folks don't want to do an extreme 10 minute thing, they could totally just think about how you embrace the stewardship. I love that piece. (laughs) Yeah, it was really lovely. It was really lovely. And, you know, they ended up. So I run this program, this meeting culture transformation program with clients who are looking to overhaul their meetings and they develop new agreements, right? So 
like we were talking about before, you are more successful as a team when you know what the rules are. So they, they mm-hmm. form these agreements about that are going to govern their behavior. And in their case, they took them and they created signs and they put them up in their conference rooms. They were like stewardship and come prepared and all of these things, which then became something that greeted clients as they walked in. And they said, you know, this is what we do in our meetings. We're glad you're here. And this is what we will do with your business. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. And it, it, it just became this, this sort of permeating way of being in their work. Now, you know, whether it survives like the next several CEOs, we'll see. But for the moment, <laughs> it's, it's kind of awesome. It's great. You know, I was also thinking similarly about the sports metaphor and the rules of the game. And I think so often they're kind of, they're almost assumed, they're assumptions that people understand how to show up at work and, and there's basics that like, you know, how to use a calendar and you know how to like this and that. But I, I think there's a lot that's a not thought about or we're just assuming that, Oh, it's fine. And yeah, it's just quite a bit missing. And so what are some examples of rules or, I mean, you spoke about the stewardship and these kinds of things, but what are some of the rules of the game that people should be considering or the types of things they should be exploring so that they don't just um, assume or default their way into you know bad encounters? So we, we ran a survey actually with whole companies to see what they currently believe in, what their practices are and whatnot. And you can chart the practices that lead to really great, consistently effective meetings across the company versus, you know, as sort of okay all the way through on a basically a, a maturity scale. And no matter which level an organization's performing at, when you do this initial survey, people in leadership positions can all spit back to you the words of things that you think they're supposed to know, right? No, we're supposed to start on time. We're supposed to end on time. We, we should have a clear purpose for our meetings. We should have outcomes. We should make sure everybody talks. We need to, you know, be more diverse. You know, all that they can spit back the talking points. And then when you look at what they're actually doing, very few of them are actually doing those things. So while there are a lot of ground rules or norms or agreements that I like better than others, it really kind of doesn't matter what I like. What actually matters is that they're having the conversation out loud amongst themselves within the company. Because while they all maybe individually think they know what to do, they're not doing it in practice. Mm. And they're not doing it in practice for two reasons. And one is that while they think they know what they're ought to do, most of them have had no training. So I was talking to a, a CEO of a Fortune 50 company, has been in business 30-some years, spends 30-plus hours a week in meetings, and has spent exactly one day of his entire career in meeting training, Mm. right? Like, that is entirely all of his job is running and attending meetings, and he's had one day of training on how to do his job in 30 years. So the thinking you know and actually doing that you know, there's a big gap there. But the bigger gap is that even if you do know it, it doesn't feel safe to actually do it in an environment where that's not the practice. That psychological safety piece is really critical. And, you know, sometimes it is, gosh, it permeates so many levels because it's having to buck the system, even though I know and I've heard and I'm pretty convinced it's the right thing to do. It's much easier to go with the flow and do what everyone else is doing. Absolutely. Right. 
And also, let's take a look at how often junior people are the ones facilitating meetings and there's a senior vice president in the room, are they really going to tell them we need to put that in the parking lot? Right. Are they going to let them go on about this thing that's off topic? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this well-documented phenomenon called the leadership blind spot where, Mm. you know, if you look at what's required for people to feel like a meeting's a good use of their time, it's that they knew what to expect going in to some degree and that they had a chance to participate. So who's got all those boxes checked? Right. It's the, <laughs> the person in charge. So they pretty much every every meeting that you set, you're like, yeah, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Woohoo! <laughs> so the people who are in the position to make the change don't perceive the need for change in the same way that everybody else does. But yeah, that thing where, uh, you know, I have worked with senior leaders and they're like, OK, I know I need to cancel some meetings on my calendar, but how do I pick who to disinvite without making them feel bad? Mm. How do I politely decline a meeting that seems to be a waste of my time? There isn't an agenda here, and I think I want to do one, but how can I help the team understand why I'm doing this new thing for the first time, right? Like, those are scary conversations for a lot of folks. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting how you point out there's just a lack of training, there's a lack of you know, actually putting some of these ideas in action because it seems safer just to not do anything or, you know, when we do start to entertain, Oh, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. And it's like, Oh gosh, that's going to be a lot of work. And what if I get it wrong and it might blow up in my face, it might get worse. Yeah. So I was talking a little bit about how in earlier in my career, I started with how the committees do this, right? And the committees, when you work with them, it's really clear. These are the meetings we run. We run them this often. When you show up, here's what you can do as an observer or as a participant or as a voting member or as a chair, right? Like the rules of the game are clear. And if you show up, you know how to play. And at the company I was working with at the time, we were pretty dysfunctional. But then the development group started working with Diana Larson and Jim Shore, and we adopted Agile. And we got better. And the parallel there was really striking because one of, among many, many things that Agile Done Well does is it makes clear which conversations you have when and how they run. Here's how, here's how backlog grooming works. Here's how a retrospective works. Here's how a stand-up works, right? The rules of the game and the structure and the expectations are clear, and then all of a sudden you can play. And it doesn't mean just because it's structured and clear that it's rigid. Like if you've done sprint planning, there's all kinds of ways to come up with your estimates and and playing with that is fun. And with retrospectives, there's all kinds of ways to run a retro and playing with that is fun. But the fact that you're gonna run one, and this is why, and this is about when, you know, that gets baked into your culture. And that is what we see across the board. You know, I think that brings up a really interesting topic that I know we both are fascinated by, and this is meeting systems. And And I think Agile or Scrum specifically is a great example of a meeting system that's just kind of like, you can go get a book and read about it and go, oh, here's how I'll implement this meeting system. Mm-hmm. I think Entrepreneur's Operating System is another example of a meeting system. Not as many meetings in that system, but still, it's like, here's a cadence and the, an approach mm-hmm. to do that. Here's the level 10. Here's the, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I know that you work a lot with your clients to develop custom meeting systems. So I'm curious to talk with you a little bit more about that because it definitely comes up in 
when we're doing magical meetings, workshops and stuff and encourage people to think about at least diagnose what's happening. Because if we don't actually look at it and think about it, we don't start to identify those rules of the game. And a lot of it's become inherent or just like, you know, ritual or custom and people haven't really thought much about it. And so even just I found encouraging people to just stop for a second have you ever thought about having a meeting just to like think about your meetings? <laughs> like just what's going on? Let's talk about it. So anyway, I'm super fascinated by this and would love to hear your take on it. Yeah, I think that's really the critical work to be done, right? Like the, the agreements are great and finding top level guidelines is nice, but they're really guardrails and they're guardrails on, you know, when in doubt, if we don't know what else to do, you know, be a good steward. <laughs> <laughs> and hope mm-hmm. it will work out. But the, the thing that really enables performance is having a system. And the first step, and we do this with all of our clients, and actually I, we just developed, co-developed with Coda, a tool for people to start running some of this on their own, which is really cool and fun to check out. The first step is to get data. Because of all of those safety issues we were talking about before, when you ask people like, hey, what's going on with your meetings and what should we do with our meetings? You will hear the same kind of stuff you could have read off of any blog post. Yeah, they're mostly fine and I like connecting with my team, but we should have an agenda or you know whatever it's gonna be. But you can bust through all of this generic stuff by starting by creating an inventory of the actual meetings you hold and then asking some pretty important questions like, hey, why did we do this? What part of our business is this related to? You know, where is it that we've got meetings that some people think are critically important but not effective mm. and other people think they're not even important? Like maybe those people don't need to be in the room. <laughs> You know, where are we doing meetings where we could have could have done an email, right? Like uh, the, the options that way. When you look at it and you put them together, that first step allows you to see some of what the system ought to be. And then after that, it's really useful. And I think probably you find this in your magical meetings work to understand the distinction of different types of meetings mm-hmm. and then how you use different kinds of meetings to achieve different results at different parts of your system. So... You know, if you're running a project with a client, you wouldn't do a kickoff every week. That would be silly. (laughs) (laughs) You need a different kind of conversation to help move work along. So we've done a lot of work on understanding what the different types of meetings are and how you put them together into sequences to achieve different kinds of results. And but it just starts by actually looking at what you're doing and having an honest conversation about whether that's working for you. You know, I think you hit a key word there, sequences, and something that we've been real big fans of are railway diagrams, which is popular, and it's a way that, um, I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's how they'll document syntax of programming languages, because that's something where sequence matters. Like, this word literally can't go after this word, or after this word, these four might proceed, et cetera. And so we found that that's also a great way to document how your meeting system, because, you know, like you say, the sequence matters, and you wouldn't do a kickoff in the middle of a long engagement. Yeah. I actually got a copy of your book just the other day. And I think, do you have an example of that diagram in there? I think there is a railway diagram in there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We use um, flowcharts uh, yeah. matched with uh, tables, right? Like the flowchart has the what comes before, after, whatnot. And then the table has the here's who involved and here's where you can find the template if there mm-hmm. is one, right? You know, all of that stuff. And, you know, when you get to the point where you've got templates for some of those conversations, it's killer, for unlocking performance across your organization, right? So I do a planning me with a client. Anybody can run it because I got a template. You got to cover these things. You know, it's funny because people always talk about agendas are the most important thing. And 
I feel like a template or a structure or some sort of like arc, some journey that we're yes. going to take people on. It's much more interesting than agenda because a lot of times if you've really baked down agenda, it's like, you know, what's your agenda, right? Like, what, it's like, what are you trying to accomplish? Or like, what's, what are you really, is this like some manipulative effort or something? But whereas a template, I, I feel like really has the right sentiment to it, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it's the, the idea is like, what's the flow that we're going to follow and how does it get us where we need to go? And we can insert any content we want. We can insert any purpose we want. But the template is kind of the the rules like that you were talking about earlier, how to play the game. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the, you know, I think in terms of agendas, people have got such confusion about what an agenda is meant to be, right? It has become, because of that thing where most of the people running meetings have never been trained Mm. and they've just picked up habits from the other people who are never trained before them. Agendas have become uh, the laundry list of topics we might discuss in this time. Yes. (laughs) You know, and people get through maybe five out of the 10 and that's not what an agenda is meant to be. An agenda is meant to be the version of the process that you share with your attendees. Mm -hmm. So they have a sense of what to expect. So if your plan is, is this, this sort of rich template, that's like, Hey, we're going to connect and then we're going to explore this and you know, whatever your journey is going to be, then, you know, the agenda you might send to somebody else might just be like, welcome business, wrap it up. Yeah. (laughs) The story behind it is, is richer for sure. Absolutely. 100%. And, you know, something we touched on in the pre-show chat that I wanted to come back to that I think is really powerful is this notion of decision-making. And I know you have a tool that you wrote about before around kind of decision-making criteria. I think you published it on your blog. And we want to get that link up as well as the Coda link. But also, folks can certainly go check out the link and whatnot. But just wanted to hear... Just some of your thoughts around what's critical for good decision making and, you know, just what should folks have top of mind as they're thinking about making decisions in meetings? So I think there are two pieces that are super important to having effective decision making across an organization. And one of them, it's again, it's that rules of the game thing, right? It's having some understanding of how you make decisions in your organization. And it's not like, hey, we do consensus and every single thing we do should go through consensus. Or, you know, Douglas makes all the decisions because he's in charge. <laughs> Actually, what, what you can do is, is identify many different ways of making decisions and then create a matrix. And we have a template for this too with your team that outlines, given the nature of the decision, which process will we use? Mm. So I think that's step one, is there are absolutely decisions that should be delegated to the person closest to that work. And there are decisions that you own, absolutely. And you should get some advice from other people before you make it, but that's yours. So outlining that and being clear when you walk into the room, here's how this decision gets made, now let's talk, is a huge deal. I think that clarity around expectation and the how it gets people into so much trouble when we, because uh, you know throughout my career I've been in so many meetings where people walked out upset, but only because the leader held the meeting just to collect information. They had no intent in delegating the decision, which was fine. But the people that were upset, the expectations were mismatched. Yeah, they thought they were going to be included in the decision, and they weren't. And that's totally fine, but I think the trouble is when we don't we don't clarify our intentions. Absolutely. Completely agree. 
completely agree. Being extra clear about the, the basically the meta decision, deciding how to decide mm. up front <laughs> is critical. And then I think, you know, the thing you were getting at is criteria, right? So we tend to be okay at finding options. Uh, you know, there are folks who get stuck in false dichotomies where they're like, do we approve it or not? As if those are your only choices. You know, often if you have at least three viable choices, do I go for A, B, or C, you're, you're in for a better decision. But then how do you rate those three options? What criteria do you use? And one of the things we pulled together was a basically a standardized list of questions you could ask for pretty much any decision that help people pick between multiple options and have a reasonable shot at it being <laughs> at least a well-considered decision. So I think that's important for sure. You know, another thing we spoke about previously was this notion of pre-mortems and, you know, the power of storytelling and how getting people to think about the potential outcome. Like if we were to make this decision today and we went with option A, what does the future behold? And so I'd love to unpack that a little bit more for the listeners. Like what is this idea of pre-mortems and how can it help us with decisions? Yeah. So in this standardized criteria, there were really three elements, right? One of them was uh, logistics, like literally what would this cost? What would it take? And one of them was a vision of success. So what's the impact if we succeed, hmm. uh, both on us and on our community? And then the pre-mortem question, which is, let's say we go for this. Let's say we go and we decide to open a new office in Chicago. What if that fails spectacularly? What's the impact then? And more importantly, why did that fail? If that fails, what will have happened to make it fail? So that is a decision-making technique, the pre-mortem that was popularized by Gary Klein, who is a researcher who looked into all kinds of ways that we can get in front of our natural cognitive biases. All of our, you know, I think I'm awesome, or I'm afraid of this, or whatever it is that you're, you're shortcutting in your head and force yourself to think through the story of six months from now, I made this decision and it went wicked wonky. <laughs> what happened? And every time I run that particular one, I love it because we end up having these conversations about ways in which we failed in the past. You know, we forgot to get legal's approval or the budget wasn't adequate or the situation around us changed. And while it sounds like it's probably depressing, what ends up happening instead is people go, well, you know what? We can prevent that problem by getting legal on board today. Or, hmm, I think I have a template that fixes that part. Or, you know, we can get funding from my uncle, whatever it might be. But that you've cast forward and you've anticipated problems and your plan becomes so much better should you choose that option. So I want to switch gears here really quickly and, and talk a little bit about meeting books. You know, we both written some books and we've got lots of friends who write meeting books and our libraries are full of different meeting books. And we were recently just chatting about how you've got a technique for kind of discovering what's new and like finding the nuggets. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach and how you go about that. And then you should definitely uh, talk about how you go through it too, because I would love to compare notes on that. Yeah, let's do. Yeah. So I was listening. This is, I will tell you that the story starts with me feeling like an idiot, but uh, I, was, I was listening to the Mission Critical Teams Institute podcast, which is put on by 
some folks I met, uh, and they interviewed these amazing, amazing folks like NASA astronauts and whatnot about how they do the work that they do. And they were running an interview with Daniel Coyle, who wrote The Culture Code, and which is one of my favorite books about meetings. Now, Daniel Coyle would not say that it's a book about meetings, but if you read it, it is. <laughs> it's just full of meeting after meeting after meeting. And I was, I was listening to it. The guy doing the interview said, well, I went back to my notes from when I read your book the first time, and I wanted to touch on this. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that I have been reading all of these meeting notes and books and never taking notes. Like what if I would sit down every day and make myself actually read the darn book, right? So I have a notebook that is devoted to my business and meeting related reading and I've adopted Cornell style notes. So I sit down and, and I'm like, okay, this day, I've got the section where I take the fact-based notes and put what page it was on, and then a column on the left where I keep my insights and my questions, and I work through it. And for every book, I scan the intro, and I, then I read the takeaways at the end of the chapter, and then I go back and I work my way through the chapter, catching the notes of something that might be kind of interesting in that particular chapter for later reference. And then before I start the next day, I scan my notes for up to that point and rebegin. And it's way slower. It's a way slower way of going through these books. But I just finished Daniel Stillman's book, Good Talk. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently reading Joe Allen and uh, Karen's book about Suddenly Virtual. And like mostly they're covering ground that I've read before. But I picked up so much more by slowing down and making myself like actually go, wait a second, what is it here on this page that might be a little bit different? Or, you know, what's here that I can bring into my own work and use in a way that I hadn't before? So I wish I had gone back and done Culture Code and Dare to Lead and some of these others that are all full of meetings with actual notes would have saved me so much time. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, I was telling you earlier, one of my mentors has a speed reading technique where he only reads the first paragraph of every chapter and he studies all the figures and graphs and then reads the glossary and the index. And if there's anything that he doesn't understand, then he goes and tries to figure out what it is he missed. So it's kind of much more of a focused, like devouring, where I'd love this slowing down. And it reminds me of one of my technique. You know, my wife <laughs> hates it because she believes that you should not write on or mm. mark up books, but I underline my books yeah, because I have no plan to sell them or have them in anybody else's possession and they improve my experience with the books. So this is crazy. If I really want to devour a book fast, I will buy it on print and on Audible. I'll listen to it on 2x speed and I'll unline as I go. Yep, that's the way to do it. Then, after I complete the entire book, then I'll go back from the very front and I'll read everything I underlined. Then I will separately, I won't take notes, but I'll write down what that means for me mm -hmm. or how I'm internalizing it. And so I'm kind of doing some internal integration, I guess yeah. is what you'd call it from a learning science standpoint. I found that if I really want to put something into action, especially if it's something that has like, specific application for my business, like it's a marketing book or a sales strategy book or something, I found that to be really effective for me to put it into action. Yeah, I feel like a silly, silly person for not having clued in to how important it was to stop and write things down mm. earlier. I was a theater major in college, so I didn't have to write basically anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to do much to, to succeed to get through that, which was, which was awesome, but maybe not the best learning training that I could have had. And after I have started doing this, it really has dramatically improved the depth with which I am able to appreciate and apply what I'm reading. Yeah, you know, I've got friends that tag and catalog and have digital notes that are tied to like Kindle ebooks and stuff. And I was like, man, if only, you know, I was just something about having a physical book in my hands that like gets me so much more excited. But that works really well for them because they can recall stuff pretty easily just based on tags and sort and filter and things. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I always find that my kids talk about this too. They're like, why would I ever want a book? And why would I ever do that? Because I just look it up. And the challenge I, I have with that is that to just look something up, you have to remember it well enough to know that you need to look it up, mm. right? There are some things that are just not present in your mind all of the time with any kind of depth that allows you to then go and retrieve them. So I wonder if there's a tool or an app that might, help solve that problem for <laughs> nomads maybe maybe oh, fun stuff excellent well i think that brings us to a wrap today it's been so much fun talking with you about meeting systems and decision making and you know the need for structure and maturity models around meetings i want to just give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought yeah, so the way that your organization and your team meets is either something that can emerge out of habit and sort of grow organically, which may or may not be a good thing, or it's something that you can design. And while the conversation required to design your meetings, your everyday meetings effectively can be a little bit awkward and scary to begin with. It is one of the most powerful conversations you can have. So I encourage you to do that. Go ahead and have the meeting about meetings and see how much better you can make your work life. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Elise. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you again. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com